the National Forum for the Advancement of Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. In this episode of the Voice of Procurement podcast, I speak with Stephen Boyle of UCD's Murphy Business School. Stephen is a renowned expert in negotiation and will undoubtedly challenge some of your assumptions about this important skill set. Details of Stephen's course can be found at the end of the podcast. Uh, I'm a negotiation trainer, lecturer and consultant and I teach at UCD Michael Smurfit Graduate Business School uh, delivering courses in negotiation, influence and decision making on MBA and other postgraduate degree programs and in our executive development section as well. Um, I design and deliver customized executive training for corporate clients and I've delivered workshops in Europe, Asia and the United States in a very wide range of sectors, including automotive, construction, financial services, food and agribusiness, government, healthcare, law enforcement, pharmaceuticals, retail, technology, and so on. Um, Prior to embarking on an independent training and lecturing and consulting career 19 years ago, uh, I worked in management consulting, and I also held roles in communication and change management at a Fortune 500 company. Other jobs that have negotiation as a role clearly need to ensure that they're very well skilled up. But actually, we all face negotiation situations all the time. Anytime there's a difference of need or opinion or conflict, we have a negotiation on our hands. So when you're working with colleagues on a project, it's a negotiation. Who does what? What will the deadlines be? What's the scope going to be? Dealing with your boss, um, just day-to-day getting along with your colleagues, also at home, um, dealing with whoever you you live with, making joint decisions about things like going on holidays or what you'll do at the weekend. These are negotiations or what each person will do with their spare time, how much they spend with other people versus with each other. Uh, Anyone who has kids, Uh, most people who have kids say that they negotiate all the time with their kids. Um, So we are actually negotiating all the time. Well, at least we face negotiation situations all the time, but many people's response to negotiation situations is to avoid or yield. So that if people feel uncomfortable with conflict, for example, or if they've had negative experiences, Uh, they may not get very satisfactory outcomes. But it doesn't mean that they're not involved in negotiations. So we all are. So I would say absolutely it's a life skill. But obviously it plays a a very special part in the lives of people who rely on doing it professionally. When you pick up a a textbook or you watch something online about negotiation, um, it's common to hear the mantra win-win. And as uh, one of my favourite TV characters, Larry David, said, uh, a good negotiation is when both parties are dissatisfied. So, again, where do you sit um, when you hear those things, uh, Stephen? Okay. Well, um, I use the term win-win right at the beginning of of courses I teach. And one of the first things I tell people about it is that I hate the term, but only because it's become a cliche, uh, because it has become a mantra that's actually very much misunderstood. The real meaning of it is 
that when we negotiate, we should be striving to find outcomes in which we meet our own interests and the other side's interests to the greatest extent possible. And the reason it's something that's very, very good to aspire to is that evidence shows, very strong evidence shows, that the vast majority of managers put to the test fail to do so, that they actually leave value on the table, not just value that went to the other side, but value that neither gets, because they don't sufficiently explore ways in which both could get more of what they want. Mm. Now, the reason why it's possible in almost all negotiations for both to get more of what they want is because in any negotiation situation, at least in almost any negotiation situation, the parties actually want different things. They're not fighting over the same thing. They have different priorities. So procurement is a great example in which even if somebody thinks, well, the, the only thing that matters to us both is the price, in fact, you're negotiating over other things every single time. You're negotiating over things like the contract duration or warranties or future business or expansion of volume or uh, customer service or technology support or returns or, and, and so on. You're negotiating over a phenomenal number of things and you and the other side have actually quite different needs and priorities. The secret to win-win negotiation is to uncover and debate those priorities and try to find outcomes in which the value is expanded. Most, you both get more of what matters to you and you concede on the things that don't matter so much. Um, you, know, you mentioned uh, that, uh, uh, that um, definition, a good negotiation is when both parties are dissatisfied. Actually, that, that can be very close to the truth because that's effectively, effectively that's the definition of compromise, isn't it? Uh, I, I've heard it put slightly differently. Um, but um, compromise is reaching an outcome in which neither side gets what they want. Um, and, and effectively, if we don't meet our priorities, if we say meet halfway on everything, it means if you and I are negotiating, you only get half of the things that matter to you. And you end up with half of the things that aren't really that important to you. And the same happens for me. So if you think about that, that, that sounds like a crazy outcome. And yet that's the outcome that happens most often in professional negotiations. And by the way, unfortunately, it happens in, for, for, for certain different reasons also in, in relationship negotiations as well, in interpersonal negotiations. And clearly as an educator and an expert in negotiation, you've clearly taught people how to do this, right? So it is, yeah. it can be taught, right? That's the Absolutely. main thing. It, it, it can be learned. It, it absolutely can be learned as a skill. Uh, and, um, you know, that's something that uh, is, is very, very important for people to understand that, yes, some people have certain skills that may help in certain situations. Um, but I, I really come across, I, you come across very few people who are purely natural negotiators or equally anyone who cannot learn to be a negotiator because it's far more about strategy than about personality. Now, personality plays a role. You know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, if we're thinking about, say, somebody picking up a book about negotiation, a textbook, say, or watching, say, let's say, some reasonably good or reputable material that they come across on the internet, 
they could learn some negotiation principles. But the key to mastery then is, so that's a good thing, because good negotiation is primarily about strategy. But there is a secondary level of success, which is about personality factors. So, for example, if you don't deal well with interpersonal conflict, but you understand that, the first point is recognizing that. And the next point is figuring out, how will I deal with that? How will I get more comfortable with interpersonal conflict? How will I make it so that it's not about me versus her? so that it's actually something in which we can have a mature discussion and it's not interpersonal, it's about solving the issues. So I would say that the first level for people to learn is, is the strategy, but also what really good negotiators succeed in doing is they know themselves and you don't have to change your personality. What we have to do is understand ourselves and understand how we might adapt our behaviors, tweak our behaviors to, to get better at the aspects that we find difficult. And by the way, also, how we might um, optimize the aspects of our personalities that particularly suit certain negotiation situations. For example, are we good peacemakers? Or are we good at engaging people in an open discussion? Both of which can be extremely valuable negotiation skills. I guess the, 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 the reciprocal of that situation, if someone does have a difficult relationship with, with a personal project or in the work environment and they don't know how to negotiate, I guess they're at a loss because they're going to default to some kind of, uh, maybe some kind of a personality trigger or they yeah. won't be able to deal with the situation. So, I mean, from the outside looking in, negotiation is quite a dynamic skill in that perspective. You can apply it in a, in a variety of different situations. It, it is, you know, in those kind of, say, interpersonal conflict situations in the workplace. In fact, like, like most things we do in life, we respond habitually. We respond based on habits that we've, we've learned since childhood. And also there's evidence that in negotiation and conflict situations, that negative past experiences um, can have a negative effect on future and even unrelated negotiation outcomes in the workplace. But having a strategy and learning the strategy that we can use and having a process can really help people to break those habits actually quite quickly and quite easily. And I know that because we all have these habits formed by the time before we've even grown into adults in the workplace. And yet I've had very experienced people who, who have actually quite easily been able to change habits of a lifetime during or after a course where they'll say after years and years of doing things in a certain way that wasn't really working, that they learned strategies that do work. Um, and, and I like to see this as it's not as if you don't have the skills, but you do, but you're not just not using them. You're, you're habitually often resorting to the wrong behavior or the wrong set of skills. I mean, if you think about it, certainly many people even deal somewhat differently with, say, conflicts in the workplace the way that, to the way they deal with conflicts at home or with kids. Not all of us, but many of us. But we do often have, uh, have different modes of behaving and, and default into sometimes unhelpful habitual behaviors. Sure. Getting emotional or taking it personally or backing off when somebody else gets emotional or and getting emotional can come out in different ways. One of the most common is that some people respond with anger. They feel you fight fire with fire. And the solution to every negotiation is to treat it as a battle and to go in 
arms and fists flailing uh, and to push your way through. And there's a further problem with this because um, we don't learn very well in negotiation. And one of the reasons we don't learn is we don't get to play back the tape on ourselves, so to speak, and see how the outcomes could have been different. And in particular, we're lacking feedback because nobody ever tells you at the end of a negotiation whether they would have given you more or whether you could have got a better outcome. So we're actually not learning that easily when we negotiate. Experience in negotiation is actually not a very good teacher. Um, that's part of the problem. And another part of the problem is that because quite often people, especially people who pride themselves somewhat on their ability to get the job done or take a tough approach to negotiation, those people in particular have sort of an ego stake in telling themselves that they did win and often don't see that the real cost, even if they manage, like say in a procurement situation, sometimes if you, had, if you were in a powerful position, you might well be able to force your counterpart, a supplier, to give in and give you a very good deal at, at a significant cost to themselves. But what's going to happen down the line? Is that supplier going to work with you? Or do you do it at a hidden cost? For example, do you not realize that may, there may be quality issues, corners cut and so on? And evidence shows that there are two ways, that, that by the way, that when people feel that they got a raw deal because they were pushed into it, they extract their revenge. And they extract their revenge in two ways. First of all, in the implementation of that deal itself. Um, and if the deal might be great on paper, but if there's problems and arguments and claims and so on throughout the implementation, it actually comes at a very high cost and you're not getting the deal that you thought you were getting. And the other way in which people extract revenge is next time round, if they're able to. So for example, if they're able to leverage themselves into a stronger position. I mean, uh, in recent years, for example, uh, Volkswagen Group have been having this problem with suppliers who would have leveled the claim that Volkswagen pushes us onto unfavorable contracts. But one of the one of the elements of fallout of that is that Volkswagen had consolidated to some very large, important suppliers, unwittingly giving those suppliers the power to. I mean, last last summer, for example, Volkswagen actually had to shut down their main manufacturing facility at Wolfsburg because some suppliers effectively went on strike until Volkswagen gave in. Now, that, those issues are still the subject of being contested, but that's not a very healthy way to run your supply chain. But when you see um, like business people at the airport and they're inside in, in, in a bookshop and they pick out these, you know, how to negotiate books. And some of them are from, you know, Harvard Business Review. Yeah. And you'll see they'll mention things like the good cop and the bad cop or I suppose these kind of tactics, if, for want of a better word. Um, are they used in negotiation in the, in the so-called real world or are they useful to have those type of tricks um, yeah, certainly. I think you know tricks are used, and um, and I think a lot, an awful lot of people rely on tricks mm. uh, too much. There is a place for them, uh, but good strategy will always be tactics. And one of the reasons why people will often want to know what the tricks are and so on is because sometimes the strategy is it may be actually a little bit more complex, and it's less sexy. It's less seductive. Uh, yeah, if I if I were to very briefly explain what I mean by strategy, it means a plan that sets out 
what your interests and your goals and your priorities are and develops and gives you time to develop a very strong fallback position and sets out the limits that you have. And also, you're honest with yourself about what trades you'd be interested in making, what, what trade-offs you could accept and so on. And you may actually have to do an awful lot of planning around that area in a complex negotiation. And then your strategy, a really good strategy, will also reflect in a mirror as much as possible how you anticipate the other side's plan would look, their interests, goals, priorities, and so on. And then would also you, you'd also assess other factors that could shape the negotiation landscape. So that's what I mean by a strategy. But when we think about, say, the kind of tactics, like, you know, tactics are dirty tricks, things like good cop, bad cop. Absolutely, they are sometimes used. And now and again, they can lead to a quick win for the user. But the problem is that, that there's a few problems with them. One, one problem I have with them in general is, is that they're, if I use tactics like that, a lot. They're kind of based on an assumption that I'm pretty smart and my opponent is a bit of a dope. And I, I believe that in general in negotiations, that's a dangerous assumption to make. That <laughs> um, might make me the real dope in the situation. But, um, but, you know, moreover for me, when most people think of tactics, they do think, I mean, the ones you mentioned, for example, they do think of, let's say, quite negatively manipulative tactics. Um, that damage the foundations of trust and information. And you need those foundations of trust and information if you're going to be a great negotiator who's going to build a dialogue in which you'll uncover, you'll have enough trust in each other to uncover where the real priorities lie and therefore where the hidden value is in the negotiation. By using those tactics, you're moving in the opposite direction from that and you're less likely to uncover the hidden value in the negotiation. So tricking each other or trying to trick the other side is actually a route to relatively high hidden costs, damaged trust, problems in the longer term, general procurement or supply chain problems. Now, there's certainly a place, I would say, for tactics that are, let's say, positively manipulative. Tactics that are positively manipulative, for example, would be tactics that focus on building trust, tactics that engage your counterpart. And there is sometimes a place for firmer tactics because as, as anyone listening to your podcast is sure, I'm sure will know, um, there are plenty of tough negotiators out there. And when you meet tough negotiators, you still want to go to that place in which you uncover value, you uncover their priorities. But you sometimes need smart, not negative, not dirty, but smart tactics for uncovering their priorities. Um, let me give you an example. Um, very often, those negative, tough negotiators, they really like to criticize. They really like to trash all your proposals and plans. And there are numerous tactics that can be used to set out some specifics and then listen very carefully as the other side trashes those plans and to deduce from what they say what their real priorities, what their real needs must be. I mean, what would you think are the three um, most common mistakes? Let's say not the biggest mistakes, but the most common mistakes that people make uh, going into a negotiation. Okay, so the first one is to neglect your BATNA. And your BATNA, so business people in an airport picking up a book on negotiation, would be hard-pressed to find one, certainly a Harvard one, that doesn't uh, mention BATNA. B-A-T-N-A, which stands for 
best alternative to a negotiated agreement. In simple terms, that's your fallback position. In fact, it's, it's actually what's going to happen or what you'll be able to do if you don't reach a deal. Um, so it, I, I like to define it that way because I like people to understand that there's no such thing as having no BATNA. Something will happen. For example, if you're a big car manufacturer and you've only got one supplier of paint left and they refuse to do a deal with you, then something will happen, which is you won't be able to paint your cars. Of course, that's a pretty bad, bad fallback position and you don't want to neglect that. So we have to try and understand what our fallback position is, but also if there are weaknesses in it, see if we can develop it or equally see to what extent we might be willing to live with those weaknesses. Um, an example, um, a, a retail chain told me that uh, it wasn't really going to be feasible with them to negotiate with any alternative to their existing facilities services providers who were effectively doing mostly things like cleaning, repairs, maintenance, and so on, who over the course of more than a decade have learned all of the protocols and procedures for getting those retail units to run very, very smoothly. And they said, nobody else understands that. There's no other supplier in the marketplace who could do that. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a fallback position. For example, you could work with a facilities service provider who doesn't do that. You could work hand in hand with them, maybe starting in a few stores. You could train them. How do you think the first guys learned? Very often, people don't want to think about what the fallback position is because they, they just focus in on some negatives in comparison to the status quo, the current situation. Um, or they make assumptions about that it can't mm. be good, perhaps because their suppliers keep on telling them how we're the only people who can do this for you, the others do that, and so on. Of course, now, you know, a good procurement team is going to be scanning the marketplace and keeping open to alternatives. But that certainly neglecting the BATNA is one big problem that people have. So that would be my number one. Number two common mistake people make or, or risk that people take is, is failing to listen. Um, and listening serves the purpose of both uncovering the real interests and priorities of the other side. And actually, it's a very powerful tool for toning down emotions in conflict and building trust. Um, and listening in general means being interested in, being genuinely interested and, in, and keen to learn what do they want? What are their interests and priorities? Um, I think that this is particularly important in procurement because very often the focus in procurement is telling what we want, what our requirements are, blah, blah, and not being terribly interested in what the other side says. Yet the more I understand in any situation about the other side's needs, the more, the easier it's going to be for me to meet my own because I'm going to find, okay, so now I know what they need, which will almost always be a different set of priority to yours. And that will tell you what's going to be the cheapest way for me to get what I want. And indeed, very often, increasingly, in fact, in a world where business is more complex and suppliers are more specialized, listening also enables you to find out new ways to innovate, to get a step ahead of your competitors. So listening is very important, but we tend not to think of listening when we think of negotiation. We tend to think of people kind of talking at each other or trying to, even trying to 
shout each other down. The, the third thing is not being ambitious enough. So paradoxically, although very often people, not just procurement people, but very often people spend um, quite a lot of time talking about their, what they're looking for, what their demands are. Paradoxically, most people aren't actually ambitious enough when they negotiate. They don't set high enough goals, or indeed they go in not really knowing what their goal should be in the negotiation. And unfortunately, that trap is particularly strong for people in procurement who often rely on, I'll go and wait and see what these three or four suppliers say to me to find out what I should want. So insofar as possible, about as many of the issues as possible, it really pays to be clear and ambitious about what you want. Not crazy. Crazy demands actually don't work. Crazy demands backfire. But being ambitious about the things that you want really pays off in negotiations. I run customized and open enrollment courses with Smurfit Executive Development at UCD Michael Smurfit Graduate Business School. So if you go onto the Smurfit Executive Development website or search UCD Business School, you'll be able to find more about my course, Winning Negotiation Strategies.